0: Welcome to the DLA Piper's Tech Law Podcast series. My name is Luca Gori, and I'm a London-based partner and corporate M&A lawyer at global business law firm DLA Piper. Welcome to today's podcast, in which I, together with Gary Stewart, founder and CEO of Founder Tribes, will be exploring the role of global corporate venture capital investing and strategic alliances to not just help restart the economies or build back to normal, but to use this opportunity to build back better than before. We have today Gary Stewart. Uh, Gary, would you please uh, give us an introduction about yourself?
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I'll try to do my one-minute pitch. Um, I was born in Jamaica, grew up in the Bronx, went to Yale College and Yale Law School, Um, thought I would be a lawyer, but then found out I was gay and decided that I didn't really want to be in the U.S., uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s while that issue was being resolved. Um, and so I then moved to Europe, thought it was gonna be for a year, ended up being for 20 years. Uh, first as a lawyer in London at Simpson Thatcher, then as a lawyer in Barcelona and Madrid at Freshfields, doing IPO work and securities work, well, IPO and, and corporate MA, uh yeah, private MA. Um, and while doing that, realized I didn't love the law, at least that portion of the law, I loved like more litigation stuff. Uh, so became an entrepreneur, raised $4 million for my startup, sold it in 2016. But in 2010, after five years of, of running it, left to become a professor at IE Business School in Madrid. Uh, in 2011, Telefonica's CEO globally approached me and said, hey, would you help us set up Waira? We're gonna do this, not just in one country, but in 13 countries at the time. I helped set up the pilot in Spain. Uh, After three years, they asked me to come to the UK and kind of revamp what we're doing in the UK. Um, By the time I left, we had invested in 185 companies worth $1.1 billion. Um, And then in 2019, I left the corporate world behind to kind of become an entrepreneur again so that I can become a black billionaire, a black unicorn founder, Uh, Change the world while also making a lot of money, hopefully in the process. Um, And now I get to say what I want because I don't work at a corporate anymore, which has then opened up loads of opportunities like becoming uh, governor of the board of the University of East London. I'm also on the board of Capital Enterprise, um, as well as on the advisory board of something called Included VC. All of my extracurricular activities, as I'll call them, are all focused on how we can make the world a better place by leveling the playing field and making sure that while talent is is distributed equally, opportunity is not. And we need to change that. We're not gonna change that by sitting on the sidelines. We need to actively work to, to
0: change that. And that's what I'm trying to do through my startup. Gary, welcome. If um, if I may start uh, with the uh, uh, first question. You, you're based in the US, uh, have, you say have studied there, have worked there. What can enterprise and entrepreneurs in Europe uh, learn from the US? Uh, in terms of uh, diversity, inclusion, how do they do it better? If they do it better,
1: yeah. No. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me uh, to be here. It's really awesome. Um, I think, in terms of, you know, I spent probably like the first twenty-five years in the U.S. and the last twenty years in Europe. So I've kind of done almost like half and half at this point. I think that what the U.S. can, so what Europe can learn from the U.S. in terms of entrepreneurship and then diversity, is first and foremost that you just need to have a kind of bigger appetite to risk. I mean, I think today I saw some numbers from KPMG and they were saying that the number, the investment by venture capitalists in scale-ups has gone up. It's almost doubled from the same time last year, but the number uh, in terms of seed stage investment has gone down by 40%. Um, And I think that if you're really trying to create a robust entrepreneurial ecosystem, you have to invest all the way through the life cycle of the company, not just once all of the risk has been sufficiently mitigated so that you feel comfortable that you can actually get some sort of a return. I think that's the first thing that corporates can learn more generally about just having a greater appetite to risk. I think when it comes to diversity specifically, and I'm gonna actually go back and say, you know, one of the things that was really interesting about Telefonica, it was one of the world's first corporate accelerators uh, when we launched it back in about 2011. And the CEO, Jose Maria Alvarez-Bayete, who's now the global CEO of Telefonica, he had it really clear, which is that if companies or corporates don't find a way to navigate the digital present and future, then they will eventually become irrelevant in the same way that companies like Blockbuster did, companies like Barnes and Nobles, you know, even retail establishments that we're looking at now in the UK, like Debenhams or Topshop, five, 10 years ago, they seemed awesome. Now, all of a sudden, You know, it's unclear that they have, well, it's not even unclear. It's like they've gone bankrupt, you know, and they've been bought up by companies like Boohoo, which are the digital survivors of their space. So I think the first lesson really is that it's not just risk that needs to increase, but kind of the realization that if you don't try and get in control of your future, the future will control you. And it's probably not going to be to your benefit if you're a large corporate. And the same thing I think holds true for diversity, which is that. In the US, I think people have understood that you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. There really isn't a neutral situation. Goldman Sachs, for example, has launched something called Launch with GS or Launch with Goldman Sachs. Um, It's a $1 billion commitment. SoftBank has put $100 million to investing in diverse founders. Citibank has committed like $30 billion to uh, diversity more generally. And when they say diversity, they're specifically looking to black and brown businesses and founders. In the UK, you have a race report that claims that there is no institutional racism and that life is hunky-dory. And that even though 50% of the Bain population lives in poverty, this has nothing to do with any sort of systemic issues. And I think that that's a problem. Like if you don't even wanna talk about the problem and then more than talk about it, if you then don't actually wanna actively work to the solution, you become a part of the problem. And I think the US, you know, things are kind of crappy there uh, for a lot of minorities, if I'm being honest, uh, but at least there's a recognition that we need to talk about it and then put our money where our mouth is and in Europe i see no talk and no money th-
0: th- thank you that's certainly uh, an interesting take and it, and it seems to me that uh, perhaps the first uh, step that um, the us uh, has taken is to admit that they, there has been a problem until now and that uh, you know the problem needs to be solved whilst you know, according to the to the report, uh, which I understand you contributed at the beginning as as, as one of the business advisors, um, you know, it seems like we've imagined uh, all of these problems in the UK and and nothing existed, which you know, it, it is farcical and 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 bizarre. So I think for for sure we are at least one step behind in that we haven't yet admitted that um, there is a problem, albeit I believe other than the people who issued the report, everybody else knows there is a problem, and I also very much liked how you divided the fact that uh, you're either the solution or you're the problem, and that it isn't uh, just a question of the minorities and the uh, underrepresented uh, section of society's problem, it is a problem of those who are at the moment occupying those spaces so um f- fully agree with that and uh, um, so th- 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 thinking about that in, in the context of um, your experience uh, you know r- racial minorities and other underserved communities remain underrepresented in tech while the industry's demographic makeup also skews toward uh, um Capital cities, rather than regional rural areas. Uh, areas, do, do you know? In, in your experience, what what, what kind of intervention and um, democratized uh, entrepreneurship, both geographically and beyond the white male and upper class cohorts?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing and the unfortunate reality, as I've gotten older, is that money drives everything you know, London is an epicenter because there's money here. It's not necessarily that there's more talent. In fact, a lot of the talent is international talent, right? But it's that London has, um, I think the numbers said that, you know, there was about, what was it? London has about a third of the money that's been invested in scale-ups in terms of all of Europe, right? So the reason that people come here is because they can go to Silicon Valley where there's by far more money than anywhere else. But if they kind of want to stay in Europe, then London is the place to be. Um, And so I think that what that means then is that if you really are trying to democratize entrepreneurship, whether by race or gender or by socioeconomic or by region, um, you need to put some money behind it. You can't just basically tell founders, yeah, you take all of the risk. You, you know, your possibility or probability of failure is like remarkably high, but that's something that you need to kind of take on by yourself. And we, the government or corporates don't really have the risk appetite to kind of help you on this journey. I mean, to the extent that that is the message, And it becomes really clear that that's because it's not important enough, right? Because, you know, governments and corporates spend a lot of money on things that they find to be really important, whether that's lobbying or on uh, issues that are particularly related to their bottom line. I think that the issue is that they generally haven't seen um, entrepreneurship until recently to be kind of important to their bottom line, and then definitely diversity to be important to their bottom line. So kind of the intersection of the two is something that I think... Um, is still a way off right um you are seeing it in the us where it's like obviously entrepreneurship is a huge portion of our economy you know the 10 richest people in the world are mostly tech entrepreneurs you know it's uh jeff bezos you know larry page sergey brin mark zuckerberg you know uh then you can throw in the guy from Uh, Zara in the text, Armancio Ortega, so the European person, you know, so that's kind of like who's making all of the money. So entrepreneurship is obviously really important to job creation, as well as just a sense of like national pride that we also have really great industries that have been born in our countries. Um, And I think that you're starting to see more and more countries say, okay, well, we get that. You're starting to see more and more companies within those countries say, okay, we understand we have a role to play. I think the part that you haven't seen is them saying, okay, but in addition to all of that, we also then need to make sure that diversity is um, considered. And I think that's usually because what they think is, well, if we add diversity to the mix, that's going to screw it up because these diverse people are unqualified. I think that is really the underlying assumption, which is diversity doesn't make it more likely that we're going to be successful in terms of finding a European Facebook or an African Google. Um, People seem to think that diversity makes it less likely and that there's a trade-off between doing the right thing and doing the economically beneficial thing. And I think that's insulting, right? Like why is it that if you hire me or you invest in me, somehow that's a greater risk than investing in someone who hasn't had to overcome the same barriers that I've had to overcome, who hasn't even gotten the same sorts of grades, like objectively speaking in the best schools and universities around the world. But somehow I would still always be perceived as a risk because of my skin color um, and nothing else, right? Um, I've done everything possible to de-risk myself, Um, but I think that you come to to the point where you're like, no, there's nothing you can do to get rid of that last risk, which is literally on your face, Uh, and that's that's the thing that people see, and that's what kind of um, creates that sense of pause and hesitation in them that it's really difficult to overcome. Even Obama, if you look to kind of like what happened in the U.S., I think a lot of it is like Obama was great. Harvard Law School, great president, no scandals, helped to steer the economy after 2008, the Great Recession. And there were some people who just couldn't get past the fact that he was a black man. And then they all said, well, you know what? Like even we're gonna go for the most incompetent white person that we could possibly imagine, uh, (laughs) Donald Trump. And we're gonna make him president of the United States. And you're like, okay, that really is eye opening that there was such a kind of, I think Van Jones called it uh, uh, white lash um, against the idea that a Black man could hold the highest office in the land and that Black people could be within the White House, that then we had four years of Trump. And I'm, I'm not saying that plays out in all contexts, but, you know, it does kind of make you think about the fact that, like, yeah, I'm resigned to the fact that there are things I could, there's nothing I can do to get over certain people's perception of risk when they see me, regardless of what I've been able to accomplish.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned education and how also the US has some of the best education establishment in the world. It definitely has a different attitude to risk and failure, you know, because Mm -hmm. I was wondering whether, you know, I'm an immigrant in the UK and and I come from very humble origins and, and from my parents, entrepreneurship was never something that was to be achieved by their son. They wanted him to become an accountant, uh, a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether the middle classes in uh, in, in all these areas where um, they may be racially diverse, but they're not aspiring to become entrepreneurs. Are we somehow not uh, happy as, as people who might be you know, diverse, to accept failure. Are we, are we afraid of that, do you think? And that's why we, maybe we don't put ourselves forward for that. Yeah, no, I definitely think
1: there's some element of that. You know, I became a lawyer, my sister's a doctor, you know, it was kind of like, and when I said to my parents, I want to become an entrepreneur, they're like, but you finally, you worked so hard, like, why are you <laughs> willing to throw it all away? So I think, you know, but I think that they were entrepreneurial, right? So they took loads of risks in leaving Jamaica and coming to the US. And you know, we grew up in the Bronx initially when we first landed. So they took loads of risks. And I think immigrants take loads of risks in terms of leaving their country. It's a very entrepreneurial endeavor as far as I'm concerned, like this idea that there's a greater vision, a a, a possibility to a greater success that you're willing to risk everything to pursue, um, even though, you know, maybe logically speaking, it, it, it will be safer to just stay where you know. Um, I think, though, a lot of immigrant parents, what they want is that that they're saying, we took those risks for our kids. You know, we'll set up in a lot of communities, like, you know, the dry cleaners or the 7-Elevens or the neighborhood, whatever, beauty salon. So immigrants tend to be very, very entrepreneurial. Like, I think that when you look in the U.S., it was something like 52% of all of the CEOs of tech companies or some, some number like that are immigrants or from immigrant families. So immigrants are very, very entrepreneurial, right? Um, it's in their DNA. That's the reason that they left their country. They, they're able to take risks. Leaving your country is a risk. But I think that you're right, that then there comes a point where um, maybe the parents are willing to take risks, but they don't want their kids to take risks. And so they push their kids into kind of safer pursuits. Um, but I still think that being an immigrant is what allowed me to have this entrepreneurial vision. Cause I was like, I can see the world differently from everyone else. And I wasn't just happy kind of not being able to share that vision. I kind of said, well. Yeah, I do believe that I can see the world differently. I'm I'm not limited to what kind of people who are from America, native born see. I know that I know what Jamaica is. I understood what England was because I had a family here. So that kind of ability to have a different perspective is, I think, kind of the genesis of a lot of
0: entrepreneurial ideas. So th- thanks for that. I I couldn't agree more. Um, I was wondering how you know you, you you have a lot of experience also in education establishment you know, first as a student and then as a, as one of the governors. Um, how can education help diversity and inclusion awareness, and and especially what changes do you think need to be made made uh, to education systems to to help uh, the diversity emerge? Yeah, no. So one of the things I started to learn about
1: at the University of East London is something called the attainment gap. I mean, the U- University of East London is like one of the most diverse institutions. I think, in fact, the majority of students uh, overwhelmingly are people of color, right? Um, and from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. But once you get into the university, you, feel, you find that even if people kind of started out with the same scores and stuff like that, something happens where um, the white students still do better. Right? So again, it's not it's not based on some sort of like objective of like, oh my God, they're smarter, they had better test scores or some affirmative action. No, the majority of people are BAME and they all had the same test scores when they came in or approximately. Um, what happens though, is all the professors are white. Um, all of the uh, case studies are about white people. And I feel like there is something about kind of making people feel included as part of the story, as well as making them see role models as to what they could aspire to become. And then there are also the kind of like small little day-to-day biases that maybe we don't perceive, but we all have a kind of, I think, natural inclination to seek out people like ourselves, right? If I see another American, we'll start talking. If I see another Yelly, we'll definitely start talking. See another black person walking down the street, we might look at each other and do a little nod. So there's a kind of sense that's natural, nothing wrong with it, to kind of have an affinity with people that have something in common with you. But that can sometimes play out to have negative consequences when everybody in power looks one way and the vast majority of people who are being, you know, kind of lorded over look the other way. And I think that that kind of then is a call to diversify both the professors, you know, the kind of like the faculty. It's a call to to diversify the administrators in terms of the university. Um, And it's also about diversifying the case studies. That it can't be that the only cases of success that we have are white men who went to Oxford um, or something like that, because then students will naturally then say, well, I guess I don't look like that or I don't have that sort of a background. So that means that I'm not able to pursue that path. That case study was really wonderful to look at, but it's irrelevant to my reality. So I think that making it more relevant to
0: other people's realities is a big part of what needs to be done. So that, 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 that that's that's a that's a very good answer, and and I think that you know that there does need to be some positive action to provide uh, the you know the examples to to everybody that that that, that it is possible, and that uh, and, and 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 do you think there is uh, a, a fixation with uh, big corporates, you know, including D, DLA Piper, as to how. Um, we recruit from the top tier student uh, you know top tier education establishments which because you recruit on the basis of paper scores you end up with the same kind of people and really not much diversity because sometimes there is that gap that you mentioned uh, and some other times because you know those top tier establishments are paid establishments and you know not many people have the means to attend those. So is there a correlation with the way corporates recruit? Yeah, no, so I'm of two
1: minds here. I mean, I'll tell you this, like when I was at various corporates, I'll say, I didn't necessarily see that everyone was from Oxford, but I saw that everyone was white, you know? So it's kind of like really interesting because you're like, well, if being from Oxford or Cambridge isn't a requirement, then why can't we have more diversity among the people who are then recruited. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with, well, where do we recruit from? Or what do we consider to be, um, you know, references that we're willing to take into account? If it has to be someone from our networks and our networks tend to be segregated, then it may not even be an issue of where you went to school. Cause again, I didn't really see that many people in my corporate professional life who were like Oxford graduates. They all seem to end up in government or in other things, but like in corporates, that doesn't seem to be kind of like a requirement, um, but they're all white anyway right? And so I think that that says that um, there is something there. Obviously, I think that if you start recruiting from more diverse um, universities, you know, at the the University of East London, that's one of the things that we're always trying to do, which is to kind of get the big corporates to pay more attention to schools like UEL, you know, because they do seem to be enamored with other sorts of, you know, Russell Group institutions or whatever the case may be. Um, And so I definitely think that that is part of the solution, but I think that there's a larger question as well which is you know when you're recruiting do you recruit from your own social network and then is your social network diverse because if you start with a segregated social network and that is your only source of recruitment or your preferred source of recruitment because it might even be the case that you kind of say okay well let's go to UEL and some of these other diverse places and then you take in some candidates but the people that you always end up recruiting are people that somehow someone that you trust can kind of put a, a stamp of approval on, and your networks are all kind of segregated. Then that becomes how the problem, uh, you know, kind of reiterates itself. Similarly, I think that if you take people from diverse backgrounds, but once they get in, there is no support mechanism in in the place, you know, or people say things that are just kind of a bit outlandish. Then that could also make people feel like, well, why am I here? And then lastly, if there's no one that looks like them in a position of power, then that's the easiest way to kind of figure out, like, listen, they brought me in for some diversity quota or because they think diversity is good marketing, but they're not really willing to put the, their money where their mouth is by putting people of color either within, you know, the partnership rank or the executive ranks or on the board. If, if you kind of start to have diverse folks at the very beginning, but you know, the, the real power is still concentrated into the hands of, you know, white men. Um, then that tells you everything that you need to know about the organization. That it kind of really does not care about diversity. It just cares about looking like it cares about diversity.
0: Yeah, I, and uh, I wish I could say we we were better uh, on diversity than 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 we actually are. And, and our organization isn't uh, as diverse. And, I, and I'm probably one of the guilty ones because I certainly don't look diverse. Um, the so. Are there any studies that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, somebody who may feel that he's brought in an organization because he's diverse, may feel, well, that maybe I'm just a token recruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any studies that, or, or, or experiences you've had that would justify saying, actually, it makes sense economically to have a diverse workforce? I personally know that it does in my own experience uh, with, uh, you know, the, very little kind of small business I run in terms of being a lawyer and and having my practice. But I was wondering whether there's something that you looked into.
1: Yeah, no, McKinsey, I think has been really great about doing research in this space. And I think they've done now two iterations of the reports. I can't remember the specific years, but they basically found that uh, if you have gender diversity at the executive level, those companies tend to outperform by about 24% companies that don't have gender diversity. And if you have ethnic diversity, um, the outperformance is like 31%. McKinsey's had these reports out now for about like four or five years, maybe. Um, But I think it is an interesting question when even McKinsey, you know, the gold standard in a lot of ways for these sorts of questions in terms of, you know, consultants and stuff, comes out with a report and says it kind of Unambiguously, that diversity is not a cost to a business, it's a benefit. And here's the empirical data. And it's not picked up by the media, it's not really picked up by the corporates. Everyone just still goes with this assumption that, oh, actually, diversity is a cost, not a benefit. You know, especially if you're the person being excluded, you're like, well, what the hell is going on? Like, the, the research is clear. It's not that I said it, it's not like anecdotal. It's McKinsey. They've done the report now twice, and it seems not to be getting the kind of repercussion that it deserves or the implementation that would make things actually better both for the diverse candidates and for the companies right and I think that that's the thing that I kind of always say to people I mean this is part of the reason why I became an entrepreneur I don't need anybody to be charitable to me like I have enough skill sets and I have enough networks and all of those things to be self-sufficient right so What I really resent though, is that when people kind of think that they're doing you a favor by bringing you on board because I'm really helping out like a black guy. Thank you, but no thank you. If you wanna bring me on board, it's because you realize that I'm awesome. And I have like a lot of things that I can bring to the table, just like everybody else that you're recruiting. um, You're not bringing them on because they're a man or because. Of they're this or they're that. You're bringing them on because you think that they add value. And the value shouldn't just be because of the skin color, but because of what's in their head and the fact that they're going to help you lead to better decisions. So if I think that someone is trying to bring me on board as a token or they think that I'm a charity case, I'm like, honestly, look at my CV and tell me, what do you think about that requires your charity to me? I don't want to work with anyone that sees me as charity. And I think that too many people, um, despite the McKinsey research, think that supporting diverse candidates means that you're. CSR program is looking good. It's a really good marketing thing. You know, I'm being really charitable. No, thank you. I'll do it because it makes economic sense. And because there are talented people out there who have done everything you've asked, gone to the schools that you've required, um, you know, succeeded at the very highest levels of the, stand, of the infrastructure that you put in place and are still being denied the opportunities that you're giving to other people. That's what um, kind of pisses me off. And I think that's what needs to change. I don't need charity. I just need an opportunity the same way that you're giving everybody else
0: and i and gary I, I, I couldn't agree more and um you obviously are representative of um, that very small percentage of generally smart people in the world mm-hmm. And no as best. a smart person, <laughs> you and I'm basing this on the same basis I would make the comment by looking at the CV and your achievements. So you know, I haven't got any any, any great prior knowledge of you, of you of you other than as you know a couple of calls. And to me, there is a lot to be said that you know the the, the really smart one, the really hardworking one, will come through one way or another mm. in one system or another. And, and you're obviously one of those. And 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 I do believe that we should uh, go for a, a you know affirmative positive action where people are forced to make a choice where they wouldn't make that choice, and 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 that to me the goal is really if you look at it, a board representation, um, university uh, councils where you have is to have the same number. Of incompetent people spread across yeah. the various uh, uh, representations, because you know the smart ones will come across anyway so um, uh, and you know i'm kind of almost fighting the, the fight for the mediocre as, as opposed yeah. to 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 those who, who who will come through so um in in looking at this, what kind of uh, affirmative action have you seen both uh, from a corporate point of view? And sometimes you know from an educational maybe if we've had time government point of view have the best yield the best results in terms of fostering this well i mean i think
1: yeah i think one of the great examples you know and i know that not everyone's willing to do it but you know um Alexis Ohanian i think it's how you pronounce his name Serena Williams husband um basically was on the board of reddit and gave up his seat so that a black guy can get on the board right because i think that that's ultimately what's going to need to happen. Like either you have to wait until the white guys die who are on the boards or kind of get bored or whatever the case is, or there's going to need, as you say, need to be, as you say, some sort of positive action where we say, listen, we actually want this to happen and we want it to happen sooner rather than later. So we're not going to sit around and kind of hold our hands up and say, oh my God, what can I do? Like you're supposed to be executives and as you say, smart people that got the jobs that you got because you know how to make things happen when you want them to happen. You know, one of the weird things is that Corporates are really easily driven by short-term KPIs, you know, share price, whatever. Um, But they can't really seem to be driven by targets when it comes to things that they don't really care that much about. And I think diversity is one of them because it can't be that hard to find some black people or women or brown people or LGBT or whichever group you wanna talk about, um, if you really want to. But when you think it's charity, That's when it doesn't happen. So, I think the kind of Reddit example was a really good example. I think that you are seeing in the US right now a kind of very active effort to try and diversify boards. And you are seeing some people who are privileged enough or conscientious enough to say, I'm willing to step down so that I can kind of create a a more just world. And I think that's kind of what. I think would be really interesting. And then from a governmental level, obviously I think what the US government now is doing, especially after four years of Trump is amazing. They've committed $35 billion, if I remember correctly, to supporting black and brown entrepreneurs, right? And that then sends a message to corporates. Well, listen, the government's saying this is a really important thing. Corporates will really follow suit if they will usually follow suit if they think that um, government wants them to do something, especially if they kind of rely a lot on government as a client um, or are regulated. So the thing is, if the government sets the tone by saying, hey, we're committing 35 billion, then the corporate set the tone. Hey, well, we need to put some money in there too. When the government says there is no problem, it's really hard for the corporate to say there is a problem to contradict the government, right? Um, So I think that that would be my answer. Uh, In terms of corporate examples, put your money where your mouth is, diversify your boards, even if that means that certain people have to give up their positions, they probably have like five or six core positions anyway, they can give up one of them. And then the second thing is government, put your money where your mouth is as well. Because at the end of the day, what really keeps people behind is lack of money, right? Like in, in the US, what we talk about a lot is uh, the lack of intergenerational wealth. There's been decades or centuries of black people being kind of like subjugated first as slaves, then under segregation. And then after segregation ended only in the 1950s, then you had like redlining and the creation of like ghettos where you kind of concentrate people of color and then the white people all go to like the nice neighborhoods and you can't really get mortgages for the bad neighborhoods because they're high crime or whatever and so they're kind of like these cesspools of of, of criminality and stuff like that. So I think that now you can't simply say to these communities, well, we know that's been hundreds of years of this stuff like from enslaving you or colonization or whichever kind of ism we want to talk about um every man has to fend for themselves i think like no the answer is that government needs to take an affirmative step to undo these hundreds of years of discrimination and corporates have to play a role there but i really don't think most corporates are going to play a role unless government first says we think this is important so government needs to kind of in a lot of cases take the first hand
0: do you see any Kind of geographical, uh, you know, if, if you exclude Silicon Valley, which is probably, I would say, 90% of where you know, most of the startups in the world are, what other centers do you see? And, and especially, you know, if, if you see any kind of African emerging center for, for innovation.
1: Yeah, no, so I mean, like, you know, again, part of what drives founder tribes is this notion of leveling the playing field. So I had to do a lot of research on like, where is the money? Cause that's actually what drives everything. And it was something like 60% of all VC money goes to like 10 cities. Um, if I remember correctly, it's like four of them are in the US, four of them are in China, and then it's like uh, Bangalore and London, right? So that tells you kind of like where investors are putting a lot of money into trying to, and Israel must be in there somewhere. I don't know why it's, maybe I'm forgetting that one, but Israel must be there as well. So it's kind of like, that's where 60% of the money is. So that means that the rest of the world, uh, you know, has to kind of divvy the money up amongst, I don't know how many millions of, or tens of thousands of cities there must be, but whatever. Um, and I think that that's kind of unfair. And that's something that technology hopefully is gonna allow us to to counter because right now, a lot of people are just limited to the best in their neighborhood, right? Um, if I'm in, I don't know, um, even let's say if I'm in Manchester, you know, um, I think it was something like 70% of all venture capital money in the UK goes to central London. Now I know that they've been trying to change these numbers because they're trying to do the leveling up thing, but it's still disproportionately um in central London. And I think the reports from a few years back were that it wasn't even all of London, it was just like zone one and zone two, right? So as long as that's a case where there's this like huge concentration of investment going into a small geography and then globally the same thing plays out where it's only like four countries or five countries that are receiving the vast majority of venture capital funding then that means that if you're in a place like africa what i saw was that like it's hard to raise five hundred thousand dollars in africa even if you have traction right and then the local investors are basically saying to you well we want 50 percent of your company or 40 percent of your company for relatively no money same thing happens in manchester to be fair but like those are the sorts of dynamics that you see outside of these polls. So again, I think that in a lot of these places, it is the responsibility of the government in support, with the support of corporates to try and see how we deal with these issues. Because if not, what's going to happen is that in 20 years, like in Africa, for example, you'll have, um, I forget, like Africa is going to have like 2 billion people by the end of this century, which is going to be, I think it's like, 60% of all uh, population growth or something like that, right? Um, And most of the population growth is gonna happen in Africa or black or brown countries, right? So then the question is, if these folks don't figure out how to really harness the entrepreneurial potential and put some real money into these startups, then all their citizens are gonna be our consumers of American and Chinese technology, uh, which you're already seeing anyway. So I think that you need governments to think a step ahead and say, we can live off of oil for so long in some countries, or we can live off of some local thing that we're doing for so long. Eventually, though, um, this is going to hurt our own national interest, and corporates in these countries need to think the same way. I went with the UK government to like um, Africa. Um, they were doing, you know, a lot of stuff in the Commonwealth to show that like the UK could support Commonwealth countries, and so they asked me to go and talk and stuff. Um, and because I was working at Telefonica, I, was, uh, I had to do like a panel on corporates. What I saw is a lot of the corporates didn't really care about entrepreneurship. They don't really think that they need to focus on entrepreneurship. And they think again, that supporting entrepreneurs is charity. Um, so I think that until that chip changes, then you're not really gonna see entrepreneurship in these countries because at any great rate, because there's no money to back it either from the government or from the corporates or from the high net worths that are usually somehow tied to the governments and the
0: corporates. Uh and it as you said it comes down to money being available to to bet uh, on entrepreneurs and um, and with full knowledge that uh, you know most of the entrepreneurs fail that's that's yeah. part of the part of the game and uh, and 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 uh, you know, europe is behind uh, um us and then i would say you know a lot of other countries in the world that are, are behind europe in terms in terms of uh, um, how they look at corporate failure and 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 entrepreneurs failing but um, it's a difficult one to to reverse uh, if you if you don't put money behind it um do you have any success stories that you've seen of people betting on diversity and, and actually you know, kind of specific ones we could look at and 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 use as an example whenever we need one. Yeah, no, I
1: mean, the thing is that, you know, the reality is that like in the U.S. even, they're not, there are very few black founders that have founded unicorn companies. It's only been over the last year or so as as far as I can, I mean, this is excluding people like Oprah Winfrey or Jay-Z and stuff like that. Just talking about kind of tech startup folk, not like entertainment folk, Um, like, there are very few companies that have ever been valued more than a billion dollars that are have been found, founded by a black founder and then all of a sudden after george floyd corporates were like we need to do something about that and then you know they started putting their money into funds that were led by black fund managers or they started investing in black founders lo and behold calinly which is what I use now to kind of schedule all of my meetings. It went from a founder never having raised a series A, I think he went for about like 10 years, just basically bootstrapping and like had like one angel round, if I remember correctly, to all of a sudden receiving a $350 million investment that valued him at more than a billion dollars. Now, what changed? He had traction, lots of people were using Calendly, but then all of a sudden the opportunity, the, the, the consideration that it's not a waste of time to invest in black founders in the US led to his being given the opportunity to receive a tremendous round, right? Which then means that he's been able to scale Calendly a lot more quickly than he had over the 10 years when it was basically being bootstrapped. And I think, you know, I haven't listened to his story but friends of mine have told me, he talks very clearly about trying to raise money from venture capitalists, you know, and let's call it the pre-George Floyd era and basically being told, this is not a good idea, like, this is not fundable, blah, 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 blah. And now all of a sudden, it's one of the success cases that you can kind of look at. You know, I had a chance to speak to Ann Vashkiki, the founder of 23andMe. She's also the ex-wife of Sergey Brin, the founder of Google. So she had kind of, you know, really great connections, but she's only, I think like the fourth um, woman in Silicon Valley to raise more than a certain amount of money. I can't remember, to date she's raised about 863 million, but whereas there are lots of men you know, even, priv- I mean, and this is like a privileged white woman. She went to Yale, same year as me, like married Sergi Brand, her sister is the CEO-, CEO of YouTube, all of that. She's still only the fourth woman of any color, um, or, or the, the fourth woman most that's been most funded or something like that. So I think that what you're seeing is that like, we're still at the very early days of seeing these success cases, not because you don't have brilliant people that went to the right schools or had great ideas, but just because historically, um, investors have wanted to invest in people that look like the people that they invested in before. It's called pattern recognition. So they're like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg is a really great founder. That means that we need to get Harvard dropouts who are, um, you know, kind of-
0: Who certain finishes with Berg.
1: Exactly, you know what I mean? So it's (laughs) kind of like, you know, there's certain groups then that can kind of be considered investable. Um, But, you know, like for a while after Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Peter Thiel, I think it was like, we need to invest in people who are dropping out of school. You know, that group became like very investable because why do they need Harvard or these schools? Let's create a fund to invest in these brilliant people who are dropping out because that became the pattern that we needed to follow. But women and and minorities have never been a pattern that anyone needed to follow until maybe
0: very recently. Uh, Gary, I well. I I, I didn't have any more questions and and so I wanted to thank you for um, participating in this podcast uh, and especially for uh, agreeing to be uh, on the panel uh, on the 5th of October for a headline event which is the DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2021 and uh, I look forward to seeing you and hopefully in person at some point as well thank you very much
1: Thank you so much for inviting me both to the panel and to this chat.
0: To our listeners, thank you for joining for this installment of the Tech Law podcast series in preparation of the DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2021 to be held on the 5th of October.